And we'll go ahead and begin. I believe we're on page 52. Uh, we've been talking here about uh, the transmission of Adam's sin uh, to us. We said it's twofold. Uh, we have imputed guilt, uh, whereby we share uh, the guilt that was uh, that belonged to Adam, and we also inherit corruption. And both of those are are part of this idea of original sin. And both of these things have to be addressed in order for someone to uh, be brought into be be suited. Uh, for heaven. So it's very important that uh, uh, we, we recognize this. And of course, one of the tensions that, that comes up here is, what about people who can't meet the conditions uh, that ordinarily must be met in order to be fitted for heaven? So you've got to have a problem of, of guilt addressed. Okay, you've got, you've got to have, you, uh, even, the, even the smallest infant comes from the womb speaking lies. He's, he's He's saddled with the guilt of Adam, and he has a sin nature. And and if you're, yeah, you've been familiar with with infants and babies, they they start to exhibit those characteristics very early on. You know, it's a lot sooner than perhaps we might think. But, you know, even 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 a, a child of a couple of months is, is actually starting to show anger and 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 such. Uh, and so uh, we recognize that that even a child, even a, a, an infant, uh, is saddled with the problem of sin, and it has to be addressed. The guilt has to be transmitted to Christ and Christ's righteousness to us, and there has to be a new nature to overcome uh, the corrupt nature that with which we're born. So both of those things have to be addressed, and uh, ordinarily uh, those things are accomplished. Uh, you know, God works in us so that he makes us new and we respond in faith and so regeneration and justification take place. But what about the person who is incapable of expressing faith unto justification? We believe that justification is sola fide, by faith alone. And so if someone is incapable of expressing faith, is there any hope for that person? And that's the question that we're, uh, we're, we start with here tonight on the uh, top of page 52. What about those who die without ever realizing the point of what I call conscious moral agency? Okay. Uh, that, that one knows he is sinning or knows that she is sinning. Um, and, and I want to make sure we note the par- parameters of the discussion. This is not a discussion of those who die without the specific knowledge of salvation, uh, you know, the, the gospel, um, because, you know, nobody told them, uh, or they live in some remote part of the world where the gospel hasn't reached. Uh, that is a separate problem. It's a problem that needs to be addressed, but I'm not actually addressing that problem. Uh, the problem, that, that problem, uh, we, we have to go to Romans, uh, Romans chapter 10 for, right? How do, how do they believe unless they hear? How do they hear unless someone is sent? Uh, and, uh, you know, how do they hear without a preacher? Okay. And so the, the, the sad reality is the person who reaches the point of conscious moral agency, but doesn't hear the gospel does die in his sin. There does not seem to be any uh, recourse for that person, despite the fact that he's never been exposed to the gospel. But we're not actually talking about that problem here tonight. We're actually talking about people who die with undeveloped natural abilities, such as infants, or perhaps the severely mentally impaired, someone who just, uh, who, you know, who's, who, who's got a mental incapacity that, you know, they just can't advance beyond, you know, the, uh, the, the thoughts of a two-year-old or a three-year-old. What, what about that person? So it's not about those who have not heard but rather a question of those who cannot hear. They're simply too immature to be able to hear and pro- hear and understand and process, okay? So once it's recognized that immortal personhood is genetically conferred at conception, we have to conclude that every person ever conceived has a continued existence somewhere. They simply can't cease to exist. God's justice could have it no other way. I mean, it, that, that's that's the nature of a, a of a person made in God's image. They live forever. Okay, 
Um, and they have a, a conscious existence in one of two places, heaven or hell. And those are, that's, those are the options here. Um, and so the, so, and so, and so annihilating a person does not fit anything we find in scripture. Overlooking their sinfulness does not work. You know, you know God cannot simply overlook sin. And that would, cause that would violate his holy character. And so with that, Background then, we ask, okay, what happens to babies when they die? And there's three basic options that emerge, and it's it's fairly obvious what they are, right? One, all infants go to hell. Two, all infants go to heaven. Or three, some infants go to heaven and some infants go to hell. So those are, they're pretty much, uh, there probably cannot be any other option than those three. So, uh, let's let's look at these in turn and see if we can't come to some conclusions about it. None of these approaches we're going to see is without its tensions. Still, only one of them can be correct. They can't all be correct. Uh, so further, there are fundamental theological issues at stake that can't be ignored in the discussion. It's not something that just God can just wave his his hand and everything's okay. There actually has to be there have to be theological conditions met. Okay. So let's look at the first option first. This is the one that is, which is least, you know, acceptable to our sensibilities here. But it's the position that all infants who perish in infancy simply go to hell. In one way, it is the easiest position to defend theologically. I mean, all people are born in sin. They are born with corrupt natures. If they do not respond in faith, they die and go to hell. I mean, that, that seems to be the, the natural sequence of events in, 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 in normal humanity. And so, so, so as we see that, now that seems to be the easiest to defend theologically. There's no, there's no, we don't have to defend God or somehow have God, uh, deny his own holiness and overlook sin or something of that nature. It's, it's actually theologically fairly easy. Uh, to defend, but it's very unsatisfying to our human sensibilities. Uh, nobody wants to think of hell being populated by, you know, millions and perhaps billions of persons who never reached the maturity level necessary to, to express faith. Okay. So it recognizes, though, that the fact that infants are wholly human, wholly sinful, wholly guilty before a holy God, different holy, but uh, and God can't dismiss sin. But there are obviously some objections to this view. Okay, First, it's hard to imagine a hell overwhelmingly populated with people who have never had moral agency or even conscious existence. Uh, if, you, if you think in those terms, hell would be the majority of the population of hell would be people who knew nothing else. And they perhaps wonder, what did I do to get here? How did I, how did I get here? He has, he has no clue. He's just there. Okay. That's all he knows. Seems, it seems difficult for us to swallow, uh, knowing the character of God. Second, though we must concede that this would be a just solution, it is difficult to harmonize with the gracious and benevolent character of God. We understand God to be a fundamentally good God and a gracious God. And even though there doesn't seem to be any obligation legally on God to save anyone, we recognize that in God is a a level of love, graciousness, and goodness. And it seems out of character with what we know about God that he would simply consign all these to the lake of fire. Thirdly, God seems to regard children as less than fully responsible. And so we find, for instance, uh, instances in scripture of, of, of children or others, uh, who do not know right from wrong. Okay. Uh, I have seven, 14 to 16. Remember, that's that whole, uh, that, that whole uh, statement here about the virgin birth, right? And, and before this child, uh, is able to tell right from wrong. Okay. And so it's a, it's a baby, a very young child, uh, who has not developed in terms of his conscience to know the difference between good and evil. And we find multiple passages like that in scripture. 
And in that sense, they do at least partake of relative innocence, relative innocence, and not not absolute innocence. You know, it's they are still born with a sin nature. Uh, they are still born with imputed guilt, and yet uh, their culpability does not seem to be as great as others. And I think this fits in. Uh, I probably should have put the, the you know, skip, skip the next bullet point for now. Judgment, we find in Revelation 20, is typically predicated on deeds and not states of being. So the books are opened, right? The end, the last day. And, and, uh, that people were judged according to their works, not according to their state, but according to their works. And so it does appear that there is, um, some, some reason to think that God would make an exception here. Okay. Uh, again, it's, it's not a, it's not a guarantee, not a, not a requirement that God do this, but it seems like we've got some wiggle room starting to emerge. Going back to that previous bullet point, Jesus says that heaven is populated by people having characteristics of children. You know, suffer the little ones to come unto me because of such is the kingdom of heaven. Now, the verse does fall short of saying that heaven will be populated by children. It does say that heaven will be populated with people like these children, uh, which speaks probably to their guileless attitude and innocence. They're, they're running to Jesus without any inhibition. Um, and it's, and it seems like, uh, that, that's, that's something that God commends, um, and, uh, finds positive in children. Others will suggest that David's comment after his infant son's death, I shall go to him, proves that David has hope of seeing his son in heaven one day. Uh, I don't know that that's necessarily a, a, a an open-shut proof text that some have suggested. Remember, uh, after David's sin with Bathsheba, uh, he, uh, the, the child is, is, basically doomed, and yet David hopes that God might change his mind, and so he prays for a week straight, uh, apparently foregoing, you know, basic hygiene, uh, eating, drinking, he, he's, he's just praying earnestly for the life of this child, and then he hears at the end of that week that the child has died, and at that point, what does he do? He gets up, he washes his face and hands, you know, uh, some basic, you know, starts to catch up from the basic hygiene uh, that he's he's been missing, and said, um, "There's there's no more point in praying. He cannot come back to me. I will go to him, but he cannot come back to him. Come back to me." And uh, there's there is perhaps a possibility that he has that there is a hopefulness in what he says. Uh, most commentaries would suggest that it's more a point, uh, more a matter of resignation. He says, you know, prayer is not going to bring the child back. I'm going to stop praying because death is a one way street. I can, he can, he'll never come back to life again. And he says, I will go to him. Uh, And again, perhaps not so much in a matter of hope, hopefulness, but rather, We'll meet in the afterlife. We, we will meet in the state of death. So I'm not sure that that's necessarily a positive statement that, uh, David is making. So even though this, this text has been heavily used as a proof text for all babies going to heaven, I'm not sure that the verse is, is as, as, as a, as, as, as sure a text as we'd like it to be. Same thing true. It's, in, you know, John the Baptist, when he is in utero with uh, his mother, he, you know, Elizabeth meets up with Mary. Both of them have children within them. Uh, when John the Baptist sensed in some sense that Jesus was there, he leaped for joy in the womb. Okay. Uh, it seems at least conceivable that infants may express a primitive form of, if joy, perhaps faith as well. This is the Lutheran view. That there is such a thing as infant faith, um, and uh, the the understanding is for a Lutheran when a child is baptized, it is not you know as as a as an infant when he's sprinkled, it's more than simply 
uh, a, a bringing into the faith community with hope that someday he will get saved. Rather, in Lutheranism, the idea is that he expresses an infantile form of faith and is actually justified at that point. Okay, uh, so that's that's the Lutheran view. Um, and so you can see, of course, that baptism becomes rather important then to the Lutheran, as it does for the Roman Catholic. More on that in just a moment. Okay. So that position, you know, that all infants who perish in infancy go to hell, while theologically defensible, does seem to have some loopholes in it as we look through some of the texts of Scripture. Okay. So let's move to the second point. Maybe we'll just go through all three of the three of the options here, and then we'll open it up for questions because we'll give an incomplete picture if we don't see all of them. Second position is that all infants who perish in infancy go to heaven. This is, of course, very satisfying to our human sensibilities. We like to think all babies get to heaven, but it is more difficult to defend theologically because we have to explain how it is that God overcomes the sin problem that these infants have and brings them into heaven. Okay, So the major objection here is this. Those who accept this model, that all infants go to heaven, rarely consider the problem of original sin, and as such, open the door to a practical universalism. Okay, let, let, let me show you here a couple of representative approaches to this problem that take the position that all infants go to heaven, and all of them, I think, create as many problems as they resolve. Okay, The Arminian position is that there is a universal work of prevenient grace that removes original sin in all men and restores their ability to exercise faith, at, at which time then they are responsible only for the personal sins that they commit and infants have none. So that's the idea, that there is this idea of prevenient grace that is universally scattered uh, across the universe to all persons when they're born, so all infants, when they are born, are not practically depraved at all. Uh, Christ's, Christ's sacrifice gives a, 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 a modicum of grace to everyone. doesn't actually save them, just cancels out all their original sin and makes them responsible only for the sins that they commit. Of course, the major problem here is this idea of prevenient grace is... is not discoverable anywhere in in scripture. And in fact, we do discover that all persons have uh, this native bent to sin. Original sin does not seem uh, to be, uh, to have been uh, removed. Otherwise, you know, that whole discussion we had last week about Romans five, wherefore is by one man sin entered in the world and, and death by sin and death passed to all men and all have sinned. All of that is basically, neutralized at the cross, and so we don't really have to think about that because it's never practically true. So the fact is we know that all persons are uh, sinners and still carry within them Adam's guilt because, you know, as 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, uh, when people die, they're in one of two states. They're either in Adam or they're in Christ. And if Arminianism says that no one is technically in Adam because provenient grace took care of that problem, uh, then then these verses really have they, they have they've lost all of their meaning. Okay, so while Arminianism perhaps is attractive to us, uh, we, we perhaps like what it says. Uh, there's there it's it's not biblically defensible. There are other universals universalists who argue for the idea of post-mortem faith, okay, such that, and here's the, here's the idea that if, uh, you know, if an infant dies, uh, he goes straight to the throne room of God and is given, in a moment, an opportunity to embrace Jesus Christ, okay, sort of a once-for-all chance to express faith uh, or not. And, uh, and uh, for the universalist, uh, all babies would... Uh, naturally and natively say, of course, I'm going to embrace Jesus Christ. I want to go to heaven. Okay. Again, though, uh, they, uh, there, there's just no basis for this because all we, we know from scripture that the pattern is 
it is wants to die and then after this judgment not a not a choice uh so so once 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 one a person dies there's no second chance given to them or even a first chance given to those uh who never had a chance in the first place okay others and perhaps this is more common in our circles simply privilege god's love over his holiness and argue that love basically cancels out the wrath of god so the idea is, you know, God is holy, yes, but he's more loved than he is holy. And we know that God is so overwhelmingly loving that he's going to, that his love is going to cancel out this holy wrath that he has. And God will, uh, by his overwhelming love, bring all babies into heaven. Okay. Uh, but the problem is God, being a holy God, cannot look with sin, look upon sin with favor at all. There has to be a satisfaction for the problem of sin that is there, okay? So the only way you're going to be able to hold to a universal, all babies go to heaven view, is to say there, that there is in place some mechanism whereby Christ's righteousness can be imputed to that infant, his guilt can be imputed to Jesus Christ, and God would give to him a new nature. Those three things have to happen, okay? They can't just be overlooked. They can't be just waived. Those things must happen in order for anyone, adult or child or or, uh, or or whatever, in order to get into heaven. So the more satisfying solution is that God, in his omniscient providence, in omniscient providence places all that he has decreed would die in infancy into Christ, and he regenerates them, simply regenerates them, without requiring a corroborating act of faith, which is normally observable in the faith to be in, in the in, in the observed in the faithfully addressed. Okay, this view successfully takes care of the problem of original sin, but still operates on an exception that is in the realm of speculation. The Bible doesn't say anywhere uh, that that God regenerates infants and brings them into his heaven. And and sort of a last point, it's it's also difficult, you know, I it's it's extremely difficult to imagine hell populated overwhelmingly by people who have never had a conscious sin. There's actually sort of a sense in which the opposite, while somewhat more acceptable, still seems a little odd to us that when we get to heaven a majority of the people that we will meet there and know there are people who never had a conscious existence in their in, in, in all of their lives. Uh, so heaven will be overwhelmingly populated by people who had, who who never lived, you know, never never lived past infancy. Of course, if you if you think in terms of mortality rates uh, through most of human history and just just the whole the whole number of Abortions and then uh, miscarriages along the way. These, these, these numbers dwarf the number of people who actually survive into maturity. And so if all infants who die go to heaven, then heaven's going to be populated by an overwhelmingly high number of people who've never had a conscious existence. And it does seem a little bit unusual, uh, perhaps a little bit more palatable than all of those people in hell but still a little bit of a head-scratcher for us, okay? There's also a position. This is probably the majority position in the history of the church. Uh, I, I'm probably not among evangelicals, but in the history of the church, this is probably the most common view that you'll have encountered, the position that some infants go to hell and others go to heaven. There are several var- variations of this. Roman Catholicism argues that original sin is removed at baptism, so baptismal regeneration, and credits the faith of the parents to the infant. Okay, so basically that child, you know, until he reaches the the age of accountability, rides on the coattails of his parents, as it were. But only infants baptized into the church have hope of escaping divine judgment. So it's that's why it's so very important to a Roman Catholic that a child 
be baptized, even if that child is not going to survive, or perhaps especially if that child is not going to survive, uh, because uh, because there is there's thought to be uh, a, a removal of all sins up to that point at the act of baptism. Lutheranism has a similar view, but not precisely the same. They argue for the idea of unconscious or infant faith. Again, associated with baptism. When you, when you read, uh, Lutheran confessions of faith, they can't come oh so close to baptismal regeneration. Uh, although most of them would say, we don't technically believe in that. It's hard to, it's hard to, uh, deny it when you look at their doctrinal statements. So for the Lutheran, those who do not receive baptism have at best a diminished hope of escaping divine judgment. Those who are baptized are assumed to have, to have, to, to have expressed infant faith. Okay, so it's a little bit of an improvement on Roman Catholicism in that it actually, uh, it, it, you, you actually have this expression of faith unto salvation that takes place, uh, but you also have some, uh, real problems too. For, most especially that uh, as that that child grows up, once he hits the age of accountability, it's, he basically loses his salvation again, unless unless he confirms in his in his own mature conscious mind uh, the faith of his parents. Okay, so it's it's a it's a little bit of a tension there, uh, but it is an improvement on Roman Catholicism. When the Reformed baptize their children, or perhaps more accurately, sprinkle their children, the, the children of believing parents, into the covenant community, they recognize in them a seed of faith by which they are saved and sealed on the strength of their parent, parents' faith. But this safety, again, is temporal. It expires if the faith of the child himself is not later confirmed. Okay? So again, we're making progress here. Others argue simply and more credibly that God prepares some infants as vessels of mercy and others as vessels of wrath. And it really has nothing to do with a, 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 a an event that happens when you're a baby. Okay. So those are the three positions that are out there. I think perhaps all of us really would like the second one to be true. And I think there is certainly within Scripture some loopholes and theological uh, maneuvering that could occur in order for that to be true. The sad fact is we don't have actually any sort of statement, firm statement of Scripture, that all babies go to heaven. So, my conclusion here is whether God saves all or any of those who die before reaching the point of conscious moral agency is never clearly addressed in Scripture. We've suggested that there is a theologically valid path whereby God might do so credibly. However, there is no theological reason to suggest that he must do so. So we're left with an unsettling but ultimately satisfying conclusion that our God, who is both a great and good judge, will do what is right. I know this is a very sensitive question. I don't even know whether there might be even here tonight in the in the uh, in the group uh, someone who who has you know some uh, a child perhaps that was born to them or 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 to, to, to someone very close to them. Uh, that this is a very sensitive question, uh, but I think there is there is hope uh, that can be extended in such cases here. Although I I personally think you have to stop short of certainty because the Bible does. Um, I wonder if you have any thoughts or questions or comments that you want to make here. I I agree with you, Mark. Um, I do, but I I do look at the verses in uh, Romans one. It says in, in, I think it's in verse uh, 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Right. 
since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, divine nature has been clearly seen, being understood from that which has been made so that men are without excuse. And for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. So, you know, I look at those verses, and, and I agree with you, but I do look at these verses, and it does impact me in that manner, that here's here's individuals, that uh, uh, beings that uh, God has created, that, um, you know, that, you know, it's not plain to them, you know, what what God has done. Yeah, and they have not, um, you know, outwardly sin, even though Adam's sin was imputed unto them. Right. Yeah. Certainly, I mean, certainly we derive from that, that the people who actually are defiant consciously and deliberately defiant against God end up with a greater punishment, certainly, uh, than those who have never expressed any sort of defiance against God. Still, there has to be something theological that takes place in order for even an infant. Yeah, uh, I, 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 I agree. It's certainly yeah. the easiest position to defend theologically. Yeah. Right. Good. Other thoughts, questions? Well, we talk a lot about um, common grace. We talk about mercy. Mm-hmm. And, and those two... Uh, concepts, I would, personally, I, I would definitely apply to infants because sure. they, they do not have the ability to think abstractly. They don't have the ability to reason. They, they are driven by instinct sure. at birth. Right. And, and, and nobody would deny here that there's common grace or mercy. The question is there's special grace. And, they're attached to special grace are those those theological requirements. You have to have a new nature to replace your corrupt nature. You have to be regenerated. Your guilt has to be removed, and the righteousness of Christ has to be imputed in order for you to get to heaven. And then, and so then, the, the question is: Does that happen? Can that happen? And and how does that happen? And the Bible is less than perfectly clear uh, in answering those questions. But certain, certainly common grace and mercy, yes. The love of God showered down. Uh, but, but are those enough to overwhelm the holiness of God? And that's, and that's, that's the concern that we have to, uh, we, that's what we have to concern ourselves with. We, we can't just have God, eh, yeah, I don't really have to be holy today. Let him in. Uh, well, that, yes, so. Uh, Okay, well, since the scripture does say that that is not God's desire that any should perish, and and we we as human beings who have loved ones who have you know spent their whole lives rejecting God, and then they die, we we still find ourselves. At least I do. I find myself with a hope that God reached them in their final. Moments that we might not have been able to see, detect. Sure. I have prayed for, for loved ones that I wasn't sure were saved. My husband's family. I I don't know that any of them who died were saved. Well, a couple, but, but isn't it certainly conceivable, even though it isn't addressed in the scripture, it's certainly conceivable that God would would then all right that person may not you know may develop an awareness in those final moments because God knows He's chosen whether they're going to die in infancy or not. Sure, it is up to them. They haven't lived a lifestyle that 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 condemns them to a short. Yeah, yeah I, I mean that's I, I would like. I mean, there's there's a part of me that says that would be. Great that it, we, we would leave it up to them. Fact is, if we leave it up to them, I'm I'm, I'm thinking we're in big trouble because if well, we leave it up to, to the, them, to the right? person, you mean the 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 child? Yes, because if no, we leave it up to them, 
Yeah, that's a, what I'm saying, though. Right. So, so if we say, okay, well, maybe you know there was some sort of infant faith. Uh, that the, the specter that nobody really wants to talk about is there. There could be infant defiance as well. Um, yeah, not, yeah, I wasn't going there. Sorry. Right. Where uh, I where uh, I was going was that that God, in His infinite wisdom that we can't fathom and that he has chosen not to make clear to us could certainly bring that infant to a place of awareness in beyond our realm. Maybe. I'm just not sure that's necessary. I, I, I guess pr- probably my... Okay, well, I just need to shut up and let you no, 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 talk. No, no, that's fine. No, I, yeah, so I, I'm, I'm not sure that it's necessary that that, that that infant be brought to the point of consciousness and, 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 and choice. I think what we have probably the, the, the better option is that God can't, and, and this is how I would counsel someone, and, uh, Perhaps I'm counseling you here, you know, some somebody here in the in the group uh, with saying this. I, my my statement would be that God can unilaterally regenerate someone and impute His righteousness to that person. That's something that He can do. Okay. Secondly, we know that God is a God who is merciful and just and and, and loving, and be, based on what we know of His dominant characteristics, we would think that if it was something that it was that God could do, that this is probably something that he very well might do. Okay. Um, although I would fall short, I, I, I would I would leave I, I I don't think I can give absolute certainty uh, to someone in that situation. But I think I could I could lead them into a into a you know point their feet in the direction of there is a way and God is a good God and whatever he does is right. That's probably where I would, where I, where I would sort of leave it there. Um, I I don't know if that helps. Well, yeah, I, yeah, I mean, we know that that leaves the door open for people to think that the possibility of an adult being given that, that same latitude. Yeah, I don't know that it's the same thing, and 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 I get your tension. I share I share the concern here, and depending on how how people express it, it, it does, that that is something that that the door is open for that. But I think if we if we we craft it as we did here, there are those who never consciously commit sin. It, 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 you know, we're we're judged because of our works. Okay, an infant doesn't have any works. Someone who grew up to adulthood never hears the gospel and dies is going to be judged for his works. And there's going to be a lot of, them. okay. So, so it is a different, different situation. Absolutely. Yeah. So the infants have no works. Uh, whereas the adult who dies, not having heard has many, many evil works. Uh, but the, but the one who dies with the inability to hear does seem to be in a different category. And I think we can, we can look at some of the texts that we looked at tonight and say, okay, there is wiggle room, I think, for the one who has, who cannot hear that is not there for those who have not heard. I don't know if that helps. Your sound's off. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Immensely. Okay. But it, it really just, I mean, that was, it fits with what my, logical thinking where it goes anyway. So. Yeah. Oh, good. I'm glad it's logical, too. <laughs> I'd hate to be illogical. <laughs> oh, good. Okay, if there's no more questions or comments there, we're going to sort of turn the corner here on the question of the extent of sin on the human race. And really the uh, question here is how depraved are we? How bad are we? And the answer that we're going to come to is a defense of total depravity or what we might call total inability. But uh, let's back up and sort of put the parameters in place and then see if we can't defend uh, that uh, that position here. So sin has completely penetrated the human race. Not only has the whole race been touched by sin, 
but sin has wholly permeated every individual in the human race. The spread of sin could not be more pervasive. Everyone gets it, okay? It's not like coronavirus where you can sit at home and not get it, right? Everyone gets it. It's by inheritance. So, firstly, we have universal sin in the human race. We see this in the testimony of Scripture, right? There is no man who does not sin. 1 Kings 4, 8, 46. Psalm 14, 1 to 3. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there's any who understand, who seek after God. They've all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. So psalmist sort of stands on his head here uh, in about six different ways, says there's no one who is good. Psalm 143, in your sight, no man, man living is righteous. Ecclesiastes 7.20, it perhaps even goes a step further, if that's possible. There's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Okay? And so there, there it sort of shows us that the expectation of God is not just uh, that we not sin, but that we have never sinned, uh, which none of us can ever claim to have been in that situation. Romans 3, 10 to 20 is a long diatribe uh, that Paul gives on the uh, the sinfulness of mankind. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands, none seek after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. So again, just then, and a lot of this is quoted directly from Psalm 14. So you said the same kind of, of em- emphasis that's here. Romans 3.23, one of those steps on the Romans road, right? All have sinned and fall fall short of the glory of God. Romans 11.32, God has shut up all in disobedience. Galatians 3.22, the scripture has shut up everyone under sin. Verse John, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves because all of us have sin. And I know I, I know I used a lot of verses there. And I do that deliberately as, you know, as, as sort of an attempt to overwhelm, uh, because there are so many out there that think, well, I'm not really that bad. I'm not, I'm, I'm not so bad that I will, you know, have, have, you know, missed all opportunity, uh, to, to write my ship and get into heaven. Now, the, 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 the testimony of scripture is that all are irreparably and irrevocably sinful, okay? We see this also in the universal universality of man's condemnation. He who does not believe stands condemned already. Was that a question? Okay, sorry. Um, so, so, uh, so the person who has not yet believed stands under the condemnation of God. The whole world lies under the power of the evil one. So all men are condemned. They're in a sinful state and condition. Uh, the universality of man's need, I think, points to this. There is salvation in nothing else. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we might be saved. Okay, so... So the, the state the statement here is all need salvation and there is no possibility of you getting it any other way. Mm-hmm. We all need repentance. God declares to men that all people everywhere should repent, which means that all people everywhere need to repent, right? The, the need for regeneration, unless you are born again, born from above, you remain spiritually dead. So and unless one is born from above, he can never see the kingdom of God. So uh, I, I don't think we can we can get away from the fact in Scripture that sin is terribly pervasive. Every single person has been touched by sin, not only affected by sin, but also engaging in sin. Okay? Which brings us then to the next step. Uh, in the uh, in the sequence here, that all humans are totally depraved, totally depraved. That is, not only do all persons sin, 
but actually they can do nothing else. Okay, so we're going a step further in this second point. Now, uh, this this one's a, a very difficult one to swallow for, for many, even believers. So usually, you know, the, the A point here is, okay, yeah, yeah, everybody's a sinner to some degree. Everybody's committed a sin at least. And so it's usually not too difficult to get people uh, to admit to the, you know, A, 1, 2, and 3 there. But once we get to, to point B, this is where people start to jump off the, the boat here, right? Okay, because, you know, patent, it seems patently obvious that bad people sometimes do good things. So the idea of total depravity, people sort of recoil about uh, against that. And, and then and the, whole, the whole idea that they can't embrace God, well then, okay, if I can't do something to, to, to get heaven, then what hope do I have? Okay. And so there, there seems to be this, this pervasive idea that you have to have at least the ability to change yourself in some way. Even if it's, even if it's just the first step that I call upon God to change me. Um, there seems to be, there have to be something inside of a person way down deep inside that is able to at least make that opening overture to God. Uh, but as we look in scripture, I think we, we have trouble, uh, coming up to that position as much as we might like, uh, that position to be true. So let's go back and, and, and look at several views of, of depravity. And then there's going to be a chart at the end, sort of, uh, put them all together. And I think we can, uh, we, we can do this, uh, before we we wrap things up tonight. So the Pelagian view of depravity. Pelagianism received its name from a 4th century heretic named Pelagius uh who was a contemporary of St Augustine if if you would uh, if you're if you're a, a church history buff uh the two of them would have sort of been at loggerheads on this issue okay Pelagius was condemned at the 16th council of Carthage in 8418 and by the council of Ephesus in AD 431 however even though it's been condemned by the church, it has seen revivals in the teachings of Sicinius in the 16th century, uh, who would have been a contemporary then of John Calvin and Martin Luther. It has also seen some uh, saw a revival in some expressions of Roman Catholic theology, and also, for instance, in the teachings of the 19th century revivalist Charles Finney. I don't know if you've got positive thoughts or negative thoughts about Finney or any thoughts at all, uh, but uh, Charles Finney was a Pelagian. The basic tenets of this heresy are as follows. Number one, all souls, including Adam's soul, are created directly by God and are mortal and unspoiled by sin. Okay, so we all are Adams of our own. So Adam had his his chance, he failed. Uh, Cain had his chance, he failed. We have our chance, we're failing. Okay, so every single person has this opportunity, the same opportunity that Adam had. Adam did not, uh, in, in any sense, cause us to sin or make us sinful. At best, all he did was give us a bad example, okay? So all persons are born in the condition Adam was before he fell. Mortal, possessing the power of contrary choice on moral issues, and in possession of natural holiness, that is, unfallen moral neutrality. When Adam's sin, yes. Don't we have to ignore scripture in order to hold that? Yes, yes we do. Well, we yeah, can't we ignore scripture. Correct. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm putting out this. You'd be wrong. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. Um, yeah, so uh, this is, I don't know if you saw that there, inadequate views of depravity. So, so, so this, yeah, I'm not trying to defend this. I'm just trying to explain it here. Okay. So it's, it is an inadequate view of depravity, but I, I put it out there because there's a lot of people out there who think this way. And I, and I, and I, and I sort of want to, you know, there's a sense in which we're, we're trying to sort of see our neighbors and our, and the folks that we have contact with 
and and even the church down the street or up the street or uh, where 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 we can sort of place them. And uh, th- these are some major positions here uh, that have been reflected in the history of the church. I think it's helpful for us to know what these. Here's position one, two, three, and four. Which position do we take? Four. Why? Okay, and then we defend it. Uh, so, so I, I, part of part of what we're trying to do is is in this is actually to expose you to views that are incorrect, not just defend what is correct. So, so yes, you're correct in 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 pointing that out. But this is this is a heretical view. Okay. So, in the, in Pelagius's view, uh, all 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 persons are little atoms. Uh, we have the same situation he has. And when Adam sinned, he affected only himself, not the whole race. Uh, the idea of imputed guilt or inherited corruption are unthinkable to Pelagius. Men sin in the same manner as Adam did. And so he serves simply as a bad example, but nothing more. For Pelagius, uh, Christ's governing work was governmental in nature. It recognizes that human sin has consequences in God's moral order, consequences that wreak havoc on society. God could punish sin, or he could merely forgive sin. He has that power since he is an omnipotent God. But these responses wouldn't help society, and what God wants to do is build society up. And so what God does is send Jesus to the world to demonstrate how bad things can get, and recoiling from the horror of what happened to Jesus Christ, convince persons to reform themselves. And so for the Pelagian, regeneration is achieved by man apart from any work of God's grace. He simply pulls himself up by his bootstraps and decides one day, I'm going to do the right thing. It's self-worship, right? Yeah, it, it does. It, it actually sources salvation in the heart of man. You know, man actually saves himself. Uh, the, the death of Christ, in, in some sense, is not even necessary here. It's helpful, but it's not necessary in order to save anyone. Okay, so uh, hopefully, as uh, as uh, as uh, has been suggested here, this this is one we have to reject out of hand. There's also the semi-Pelagian view, which sort of popped up the century after Pelagius was was condemned here. John Cassian is a figure that's associated with it. Uh, This doctrine is also condemned at the Council of Orange, but has seen revival since. The idea here is that Adam's sin weakened the power of all men to do good, but didn't destroy it. Okay? Depravity is not total, and certainly we shouldn't think of depravity in terms of inability. It might be very difficult for a person to come to Christ, but never would the word unable be used. They would never say that man is unable to come to Christ. So a regeneration again occurs when man, by his own native ability and apart from any grace from God, makes the initial overture to God for mercy and God responds with what is called assisting or cooperating grace. So I make the first move. I'm in a weakened state. I've been, I've been damaged by sin, but not so much that I can't cry out to God for help and he'll grab me and pull me up. Okay. But I have to cry out to God before he reaches out and pulls me up. Okay, so that's the second view. Third view is the Arminian view. Adam's sin corrupted all mankind, inclined them all to sin, but did not confer guilt upon anyone but himself. So the idea of imputed guilt finds no place in Arminius. So he believes in depravity, inherited depravity, but not inherited demerit. Man is culpable only for the sins that he voluntarily commits. It was necessary to God's justice to extend grace to all men in order for salvation to occur. So uh, Arminius is an improvement here because there is a requirement that God act first. Okay, 
Uh, man is in a state where he cannot appeal to God for any help, and so God must do something in order to make that person able to cry out to him in faith. But what Arminius believed is that there was a universal work that God, that Jesus did for everyone, giving him just enough grace to reach out, okay, but nothing more, okay? It didn't actually save. It just made him capable of embracing uh, or, or appealing to God. Arminianism holds to the axiom, if I ought, I can. Okay? And uh, perhaps a lot of us think in those terms, right? If God tells me I must do something, then I must be able to do that thing. Um, and, but that doesn't necessarily follow, okay? God says that all persons must come to him by faith. God commands all persons everywhere to repent. And the fact is, some do not and some cannot uh, based on uh, their sin. Regeneration for Arminius occurs when God responds to the overture of faith from men made capable or able to do so by prevenient grace. Okay? So I see here, uh, here's a chart here that details uh, the uh, major views on depravity uh, with the emphasis here on the three false views and then just sort of the uh, the teaser here uh, for what we're going to be defending uh, you know, probably next week here um, as the Augustinian view or the Calvinist view, uh, reform view, any number of names that could be associated with that. Okay. So for the, and so you can see how the chart works. Uh, for original sin, Pelagius said, Adam just gave us a bad example. For semi-Pelagianism, there's a weakening of the nature and will. Arminianism goes further. Inherited corruption. Uh, Calvinism says not only inherited corruption, but imputed guilt, uh, leaving then the person in a state of total inability. So the state of the unregenerate. Before one is a Christian, what is the state of man? Well, Pelagian, you're neutral. For the semi-Pelagian, you're weak in faith, you're, you're, your your ability to uh, appeal to God for help is feeble, but it's there. So a man is weak and needing assistance. Arminianism actually says that mankind is depraved, but that Jesus helps everybody the same. He gives everyone prevenient grace. Whereas the Calvinist or the Augustinian says uh, that the uh, that uh, depravity is total person is incapable on his own of appealing to God or to Christ for his salvation. Okay. The view of the atonement then for each, uh, for Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism, we have a governmental view of atonement, a good example perhaps uh, that God gives, that Christ gives to us, but nothing that actually saves anyone. Okay. Arminianism, uh, you know, some, some Arminians find themselves still in this governmental camp, but many Arminians at least claim uh, to hold to some sort of a substitutionary atonement. But rather than an actual substitution for sin, Jesus dies on the cross to provide sin, to, excuse me, to provide salvation for everyone. So on the cross, Jesus doesn't actually save anyone. He just makes it possible for all persons to be saved. The Calvinist, or the Augustinian Reformed position, is that atonement has to be a particular redemption. When Christ died on the cross, he was saving specific people, his elect. The view of grace and regeneration, then. Uh, for Pelagian, there's no grace necessary. You don't, you don't need help. The semi-Pelagian says you need a little help. You need cooperating grace. Arminian says you need a lot of help, but everybody gets it, right? Prevenient grace, but not individual or efficacious grace. For the Calvinist or the Augustinian or Reformed, 
There is electing grace that is both individual and efficacious. God graciously elects specific individuals to salvation. So what we might call unconditional election. Okay. So those are, those are the options there. And having then laid out this table here, we want to move to a defense here of the latter view here, uh, the Augustinian Calvinist reformed understanding of sin and its extent on the human race. Okay. Any questions up till that point? We, 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 we get what the chart is saying. You understand the, uh, the nuances of difference between those positions. Uh, can you hear me? Yes, barely. Okay. Um, it seems to me that you're, when we're talking about the total depravity and the Bible also says about, um, I knew you while you were in your mother's womb and you were conceived in sin. And then all those verses you read said, everybody's a sinner. Right. So that tends to make me believe that I, and I never thought about this before, that all these babies are, that, that applies to them too, does it not? And, and yeah, and there's, there's where the tension comes in. If we're going to have all of them getting into heaven, that sin problem still has to be addressed. Because okay. people say that. You can, yeah. but you can say God in this grace may do that. We just don't know. You can't lie in. We good with that? Yeah. Other comments, questions? Question back on the baptism. Yeah, yeah. Um, The Reformed position, a Reformed position would be that baptism is similar to uh, Old Testament circumcision, right? Similar, yes. Did circumcision take an effort? ethnic Jew and provide saving grace until some point in time? Yes, and so that's, that's, and that would have usually been, been celebrated at the bar mitzvah, right? So when a, when a, when a child reaches a specific age, if I'm correct, uh, the, uh, uh, most of the rabbinic tradition says at age 12, that a child then becomes an adult. And at that point, at that ceremony then, he's got to confirm what has been assumed up till now, right? So that's where the Reformed would carry it on to the New Testament. Right, right. Yeah, so up until, up until the, up until you get to that point of confirmation, and, and yeah, and many, many Reformed actually have this, a confirmation ceremony that sort of parallels then the Bar Mitzvah, right? Okay, Mm -hmm. so there's a confirmation. You take confirmation class, and then when you know, and usually Mm -hmm. it's like when you're 12, 13. It it varies, but usually around that age, you have to take these classes, and then you have to, you have to, you have to personally commit uh, to the belief structure of the church. Uh, Up till that point, it's been assumed you're you're safe. You're not saved. You're safe. You're sort of riding the coattails of your parents' faith. but once you hit that age, whatever that age might be, then you have to decide for yourself. You become a conscious moral agent of your own and you have to make that, you, you have to, you have to make the presumptive faith, uh, you know, a, a actual. Does that make sense? So that would include like most of the Presbyterians or the yeah. non-liberal president. Right. Right. Yeah, most, most of, most of your conservative Presbyterians have some sort of a confirmation kind of classes that you would take, uh, in order to, to take that step of becoming a, uh, if I can say a full believer. See, that's, that's where, you know, that's where, where Sir Jonathan Edwards got in trouble when he was in, in the American, in, back in the 18th century, right? He took over a church that didn't have a confirmation kind of a situation. And so what ended up happening is all of these children who got baptized or sprinkled or poured when they were infants, they get into the church, they grow up in the church, they never actually confirm or affirm the faith of the church, and yet they become prominent members of the church. Okay. Edwards comes along and says, this is, this is a problem. We've got a church that is run by unbelievers, um, that, 
that God never intended that to be the case. And so after he had been there, I believe it was something like 19 years, he finally, <laughs> you'd think, after 19 years, they, you know, going through the Great Awakening, he's one of the greatest pastors, uh, leaders in New England at the time. You would think that they would be, okay, yeah, this guy has something to say. But when he proposed then that the church move to a situation where you actually have to affirm the faith, the faith statement of the church, the doctrinal statement in order to be a member, he was voted out at, at, at a rate of 10 to 1. Um, and so that's, that's when he went out to the, what, the Western frontier, which was Western Massachusetts at the time. Uh, so he goes out to the Western, uh, frontier and for six years he's, he's, he's in isolation. Um, it's, it's sometimes thought his, his exile years pretty much out on his own in the frontier, does some minor ministry, spends most of his time writing. And so that's where we have all the writings of Edwards finally is invited back, uh, to, uh, to, uh, uh, to be uh, president of, of Princeton Seminary um, and uh, assumes that role. And uh, there was at that time a move uh, to inoculate all of the important people in America against smallpox, uh, not vaccinate, inoculate. That is to give them not a, a dead portion of the disease, but a, a slightly alive portion of the disease. And he received it. Uh, and died of smallpox just after he was appointed to be the president of Princeton. So, you know, these, 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 these pandemics are, are, you know, we, we, we've not, we've not lived through one, uh, but these were sort of a, a very common thing back in the day, particularly smallpox, which was just a, a, a terrible disease, far, far more contagious and, and far more deadly, uh, than what we're seeing here with this coronavirus. Uh, yeah, it's a little bit of, history and story with that. Okay. So next week we'll come together and we will start here talking about the biblical description of total depravity in which we're basically trying to defend the, the last line of the graph that we just looked, looked at. Okay. So we will be meeting next week. Does, I know that was a question. Uh, we've decided to, there's no sense in taking the week off for spring break because Spring break yeah. doesn't mean anything right, right now, right? Okay. <laughs> so, uh, so we'll go ahead and, 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 and hopefully we'll get done then by the end of April. So we've got four weeks left to cover what? 20 pages? I think we can do that. Shouldn't, shouldn't be a problem. So we'll see you all next week then. Thanks for coming by. Bye.